One of the reasons why I love Asana so much is because it was created to help teams organize, track, and manage their work so that they can accomplish more. It doesn't matter what time of day or time zone you find yourself in, teams are always aligned no matter what. Book a call to see how Asana can make the difference in eliminating work about work within your team. Welcome to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Mark E. Murray. In Systems We Trust dives into all things systems and processes and interviews the professionals who are using them to change the landscape of their organizations every day. Are you ready for more clarity? Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of In Systems We Trust. My name is Mark He. I'm your host, and today I'm speaking with Kevin Dominic Corta. Kevin is a technology executive, board member, and IT innovation and growth specialist. Kevin dedicates himself to inspiring people to take control of their time, data, and dreams in IT, business, and life. He has a strong track record for harnessing commercial acumen with finance expertise to deliver large-scale technology programs. His focus is to help companies adopt leading-edge security, cybersecurity, and automation practices to turn IT from a hindrance into an asset for every organization. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Great to be here. Uh, so good to have you. I'm looking forward to diving into this conversation and talking about identity management and you know cybersecurity and really just understanding you know how this plays um, a crucial role in the landscape of organizations today. And so I'd love to understand and just take a step back and give you a chance to elaborate on just your your background and your career, your expertise, and really how you got to the place that you're at today. I'd love to. I mean, we all have a big history and long time and been 10 years now in this country, which someone has to remind me this year, actually, that it's that long. But it started all out in college when we had the first social medias coming up and people were excited about it, sharing and as it's still the case, oversharing. And we then had the first cyber attacks based on it because people shared like, oh, that's my first car. And what do banks like to ask you for resetting that password? Oh, what's your first car? Or what's your dog? Or where did you meet your spouse? And all these we love to share. And that kind of got me into the question of, okay, what do we actually do with our data? And there's not much more important data than our identity, both in terms of the login we use at work, but also in terms of who we actually are. And I've been staying with that since then, and I'm happy to be here to talk more about it. Yeah, awesome. And I'm glad to explore it um, a little bit more as well. So let's start by talking about Univention. Like that's been a big focus of your career. Can you start us off by maybe talking about the company's mission and how it's maybe evolved over time or, or since you got started? Absolutely. I think most of us start our work day very similar. At least if we work in an office job, we put in a username and a password as a computer. Or we do that right after getting the coffee, depending on who we are. And then we repeat that dance over and over when we lock into our email, when we lock into our CRM scheduling software. And that's really an annoyance. So our mission is to make it, first of all, for the user easier that we only have to do that dance of entering a login once. 
but also for the admin who, in the worst case, when we come new into the company, has to make sure our name goes into our computer, into the email system, and so on and so forth. And I think there's no one on this planet who says, I love doing double data entry or triple. And given how much IT experts are needed and from a company perspective, how much they are paid, you really want to minimize their yeah. stress and minimize the time spent on these routine tasks. So our mission is to make it possible for the right user to get easily into the right system and to the right applications. Are, are we talking about directory syncing and, and single sign-on yes. and things of that nature? Directory syncing is a big part. Yeah. Okay. Single sign-on is always the goal for everyone because I think 30% of Americans would rather not do an important task than to enter a password again. So let's yeah. get rid of the password entry as much as possible. Can you, yeah, can you break this down a little bit? Because, yeah, we're talking about single sign-on. And so if you are synced to an, a directory either through um, Microsoft or, or Google or whatever um, organization governs your, your, your logins and your user information, can you talk about that versus standard passwords that we all know and love or don't um, versus pass keys or pass phrases? which I'm hearing a lot more about these days. Can you talk to, you know, use cases or why you would use one or the other and, you know, how secure some of them are versus the other? Would love some more information. So there, there are really two parts you touched on. One is the single sign-on aspect, which gets away with the sign-on. Uh -huh. So typically your computer gets kind of a relatively long cryptic token, which it uses to log you into the next application after you successfully proven who you are once and that's a single sign-on aspect so the user sees one sign in even so the computer does it in the background multiple times and really the the advantage of single sign-on is that the less you have to do and the less more comfortable it is for you the more likely a person is to use something which is secure, whether it's waiting for an SMS for multi-factor authentication, plugging in something, or even in the least secure way, enter a very long, complex password. On the flip side, if you have to enter the password five times, and I'm guilty of that, I make my password exactly the eight characters the website wants me to, if it requires me to enter it over and over again. Right. The other thing, yeah. Um, yeah. The other no, thing is path keys or token authentication, SMS, multi-factor, which really makes that one login more secure because you have not just something you know, which is your password, and which is really limited by how we as humans perceive randomness. If I give you a password with yeah. six A's in ten characters, you will be like. That's not secure. And from a computer perspective, that's as right. good as having all characters different. But um, yeah, the March factor gets away from this kind of limitations on our brains and either uses something yeah, like our phone or a key, a token, or biometrics if we really want to share that. Got it. 
Okay. Can you expand more on what Univention is? Would it be similar to, say, in implementing a one password or last pass or, or NordVPN or Nord password solution? I think the in your biggest company? competitor we have is one we really need to read is Microsoft Access Directory. So it's really the central directory okay. services, the login, the authentication part, and the directory, and then also a bit of the platform. So if you're a small company, getting it easy to get the applications on because as much as we like working with directory, the end user hopefully never gets to touch with it more than the login dialogue. Right. Right. Um, well, can we focus in on, on identity management? Like, I find this particularly interesting. Um, can you explain why you believe this is such an important aspect of cybersecurity? It's the access. It's kind of asking, why do you believe keeping your key in your pocket and not on the doormat or under the doormat is important to keeping your house secure? There's quite a lot of it to to see how people deal with yeah, logging in, deal with the security aspect. And on the flip side, it's 80% of all cyber attacks still work via the person. So it's either grabbing a password or getting someone to install a keylogger or something which gets them in. And so if you have control of your identities, if you make sure, okay, you have to be a real human, you have to be sensible about logging in and not, okay, oh, well, he just logged in from Seattle and now he's logging in for Hong Kong. Makes perfect sense. And right. it's kind of meshing the computer between that thing, between our chairs and keyboards, which uh, has often others' idea of what's important. And that kind of the, the right. bread and butter of identity management and of bringing it in and making sure that, first of all, the admin isn't overwhelmed with it, that everything works, especially on the first day someone comes in, they don't want to run three times, okay, this login is wrong, this email is wrong. But also, when someone leaves the company, but just maybe even the more important part, you want to make sure they can't log into anymore into your systems, they don't have any data anymore, and their identities don't work anymore. So Kind of the right. two flip sides of beginning and end of it. Got it. And so in the example you just gave, like just thought about the Hong Kong, you know, versus Seattle login. Do VPNs, you know, are, are they are they redundant then in this process? Or are they a hindrance to effective cybersecurity? Because someone could, you know, sign in, they could be in Seattle and need to log into customer data um, that is that is in Hong Kong and it's more effective, it's, it's easier for them to go that route use a VPN. How, how, how does that play a role so in So VPN is a different kind of protection. A VPN kind of builds a bubble, God gives you a way into a bubble. Kind of, um, so if, if you think in networking terms, your computer network, whether it's at home or at work, is kind of blocked off with a firewall and then a router which connects then your network to the internet and the VPN gets you way through the firewall into the system. So that might enable you to log in in the first place. It might be that some of the systems are reachable without a VPN, but yeah, the VPN gives you the 
in gets you into the network. It hopefully doesn't get you to the data because even if you're in the network, your engineers might or should not be allowed to deal with human resource data. Your human resource department, on the other hand, shouldn't download the finance projections from the finance department. And naturally, you don't want the engineers to update the finance documentation or the invoicing. So each of them has right. their own identities, their own groups and their own responsibilities. And that's kind of the part where the identity management comes in. Keeping these separate and giving everyone access to the right data. Right. Yeah, of course. And you had mentioned, the only reason I asked that is you had mentioned like the admin being overwhelmed, right? And so in this case, if it does um, show up on a log that someone was in Seattle and, and then they're trying to log into Hong Kong, it's quite possible that they were using a, a, a VPN to change their location. Would something like that be understood by the admin or by the software? Um, or would that, you know, throw a whole wrench in in the in the system. In the end, it depends on how you compress it down. If you, if that's a regular occurrence, you can just okay. say, okay, that's an exception which is valid for someone working with the customer data. On the other hand, if you have yeah. possibly your HR specialist, for them it's not valid to do that because they really should only work either from home or from the office. So that that's the other thing. You have to make it easy to build kind of groups and to keep in mind that probably if you have one engineer who does it, at least if you're big enough, you have 20 of them. And once your customer goes yeah. away in Hong Kong, you might need for all of them to remove that exception. And that's the other aspect right. of identity management okay. to do the group-based thinking. That makes sense. I'm really curious to know, um, because you spend so much time in this world, have you... How, how bad has it gotten for you? Or how, how bad have you seen these situations get out of control where there is a breach? Um, are there any stories you can, you know, share with us on, you know, what happened and maybe actions you took or, yeah, I'd love to know. Very curious. It's very interesting to see breaches nowadays because especially with changes like uh, chat GPT making AI available, making language models available. It's very easy to get this combination of user identities of how we are. So we recently had a customer breach where a 16-year-old, I think he was at that point, just bought data from Darknet of breaches at shopping sites and then went into LinkedIn, found out, okay, that's the engineer on LinkedIn, he found, okay, that's his private email, that's his work email, that's his other private email, and then went through the data, okay, here are the six passwords which have been breached, and then built a, or had ChatGPT built the password he will probably use at work. And that's been an, a known attack for years, but before it was like a human needs to look at it and see, okay, this is the pattern he has in his mind that will be his likely password. And now with AI, he did it for thousands of people and quickly found one where he logged in with a valid account without having to try multiple different passwords. And that's really a difference we face now that these attacks used to be, yeah, 
you need to look at it. So you first need to find a target valuable enough to do it. And now it costs them like, I think, $12 to do it for thousands of people. And so the the value of the target can be a lot lower than someone with national security data where it's still a human can do it. At. Right. So I just want to confirm what you said um, regarding ChatGPT. So you said that this person was able to, you know, kind of get around the back end of some system, pull out standard passwords and, and emails um, that were used on various logins, and then feed that into ChatGPT and ChatGPT estimated or created uh, a profile of what their work password could yeah, look like. What the most likely work password would be. Wow. And it was successful. It was at least in, in the case of our client was successful. And then they got their cybersecurity guy in to analyze it. They found the guy. And, and then it's like yeah. the, the movie stories. Okay. You either go to jail or work for us. And then we had a yes. post-mortem of, okay, how can we change the login sequence to make it more secure to prevent these kind of attacks? That is so interesting. And that was my next question. Have companies ever hired you to go in and test their security for these, you know, um, inconsistencies or potential breach opportunities? We typically then work with external consultants because if you're the one who provides the software and the one who tests it, you have a bias in your mind of, uh, okay, that's the way we go, would go in there. So, but yeah, we have been hired to do that, but we then normally subcontract it for someone who doesn't work with that every day. And someone who has an also the very creative ideas of um, how to attack these things. And it's still a lot different. We, of course, do penetration testing internally, but that always goes more into the, the part of, okay, how secure is the software as in the source code versus with the client. I've seen people go and say, Hey, I need to check your email account. Can you quickly log in and then look over the shoulder, have the password. And this kind of yeah. old attacks where, okay, if you see someone in front of you and trust them, they, they can do a lot of bad things. And, uh, I think of five, six years ago was popular for one of our contractors to just go in with Google glasses and record the whole interaction. No one sort of questioned Oh man. He was just a geek guy who tried out the new thing. And no one thought, okay, he's recording the whole conversation. That's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, so many things that are emerging now as far as technology that we're not considering and the implications around using that technology. Um, for me, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I used to own a marketing agency. And so years ago, I was subject to a breach of my my Facebook um, ads account for the agency. And so this third party logged into my Facebook business manager. Um, there were multiple admins on my side, but they started running ads for different businesses and companies across the world. Spend was in the thousands um, per day. And um, I was able to lock it down after, you know, about a week or so, but I had to prove to Facebook who I was and then somehow regain access to, to the Facebook account 
and the business manager. And Facebook was not helpful at all in this entire situation. So like that's one example of something that has impacted me directly. And now, and a lot of the listeners here, like we all, a lot of us work remotely, right? We have, whether you're a digital nomad or you have a hybrid, you know, work environment or you're full-time working remote. So what are some of the things that we can do to protect ourselves from, you know, um, a lot of these vulnerabilities that seem to exist around online, you know, workspaces? Like I have uh, a VPN set up all the time. We use one password internally, but I can't be there, you know, with a team member who's traveling through Eastern Europe, you know, to make sure that no one's peering over their shoulder or to make sure that, you know, you know what I mean? So like, what are those bare minimums that we should all be considering around, around cybersecurity? How can we really protect ourselves? I think the first thing is never assume it can't happen to you. That's as stupid as it sounds, we like to always believe we are the smartest person in the room and think of, okay, how can he be so dumb to do that? And that's important both from a point of view of how you handle your security, but I think it's also important from kind of managing people with had just happened to them with your employees or your customers to say, oh my God, my website has been breached or someone logged into this account you set up for me. And that's, uh, I think that's the first step. And then on the technical side, multi-factor authentication, preferably with a key and not with an SMS. So uh, keys are, I think, the most popular ones are, I think, a must-have, especially if you travel around the world and get to different networks and or work in coffee shops, work in hotels, where you're really not in control of the network and where you might not be able to route everything to your VPN because it's just a latency issue then. Sorry. So even if you have a VPN running, it might not be able to route everything through it because of latency. Video calls are, I think, the best example of what is hard to do with a VPN. So you might have like hybrid scenarios where some stuff goes over the VPN, like your accounting software or your customer data, and then you have a meeting with someone where you might use the same login details, but it doesn't go over the VPN because uh, we would be sitting here like, and everyone would be like right. yeah, waiting yeah. for you to actually say something while you wait for audio come through. Okay. Can you speak to how quickly you know, breaches can happen. Cause like for me, sometimes I'll go to a coffee shop and so I'll find myself at a Starbucks or a McDonald's or like a hotel lobby or an airport lounge. Right. And sometimes I'll log onto the Wi-Fi. I'm working for, you know, five, 10 minutes. And then I remember my VPN's not on. Am I already, is it, it's already too late, right? If I turn it on at that point, they've already gained access, right? Like, am I protecting anything at that point um, or? It's probably the question of uh, who you are and what you do. If you work with dual-use goods, if you work in building military hardware, then might be too late. If you're in the advertisement space, then it, you're, you're not, not a high-risk high target. target. So it, in that sense, yeah. you're more like, like if someone sits there and tries to 
get data from everyone in the lobby and then see, okay, someone is accessing their bank website without the little HTTPS at the top because they haven't updated their computer since 1995. Then these are then the the kind of the drive-by target, not the the ones who that's kind of in that sense, keep your system up to date and keep up with changing your password, making it longer, making multi-factor the basis, then, um, then, then all these kind of, okay, you need a high secure VPN. You can't use public Wi-Fi. You need to use encrypted phones. So that's kind of, okay, where, where is the, how much of a target am I really? But yeah, as we saw with the example of the login, that's also changing of, okay, what really is the cost of the data of me breaching you versus what's my reward there? They are saying, I'm not that important. No one's gonna, <laughs> not going to be a victim of a, a coffee coffee uh, house drive, drive-by or anything like that. Yeah, it's... Um, I guess it, it depends, very much right? depends yeah. and it's... The, the important thing, it's still, is that 80 or more percent are breached by an interaction with you, whether you clicking on a scam message or installing something by yourself or yeah using the same insecure password in 15 different websites. I think that's still more of a risk than, yeah, any, anyone listening in, in a coffee shop, at least from a cybersecurity perspective. Then you have the whole data risk, privacy risk. That, of course, looks different. And if you look at Facebook's, I think, $1 billion fine in the EU, if you're in the right business, ignoring data privacy or individual privacy rights can get quickly as expensive as a cyber attack, but that's more into business practice side than the secure security space. Let's talk business practices then for a minute. You mentioned a moment ago that, you know, we should be encrypting our, our devices. We're talking about phones. Um, is it, or would you recommend that companies enforce a, you know, um, employee to put email on their phone or work assets on their phone if it isn't encrypted? And then how can we protect ourselves there? Because like to log into an iPhone, you have a four or a six digit pin, or in a lot of cases, it's you know, face scan now, but they're a lot easier to break into, I would imagine, if one was misplaced or lost. Actually, phones are relatively secure if they're well set up. It's a lockdown system. People were really afraid of them getting lost because they used to be a high value item even before we had smartphones. I mean, if you had uh, what? Nokia brick phone in the 90s, that thing still cost $3,000. Uh, Nothing was breaking that, yeah. Yes, but also if you left it on the subway, someone had your $3,000 phone and you had to explain to someone how you lost an asset, like which, which if we take inflation would cost today $10,000. So, um, so kind of the security level of the phone has always been higher. I think we much more focus on laptops because computers used to stay in the office. Encryption has been optional for most people because 
if someone walks into the office at that point where, where it's a big desktop, someone could as easily take the manila folders from the wall and had the same data without worrying about encryption. So I think the mindset about encrypting computers and encrypting something which I might forget with leaving just my back on a chair, I think that's more important than the phone. But yes, we should encrypt devices, especially the ones who go out of the office, who go out of secure rooms and who are in an area where people have access to whether it's a shared office or whether it's someone commuting. Got it. Okay. Um, I want to get practical for a second. I mean, we're talking about different tools and, and things people can do. We've talked about 2FA and multi-factor authentication. When it comes to um, protecting like your online identity, if you are in a coffee shop, we mentioned VPNs. What are some of the ones that you would recommend people are using that are maybe, you know, been tested by yourself or, you know, um, hold up better in the, in the market. I think starting again with our brains, if you have a breach, what do we get in the U S we get that little card, which says, okay, here's $6 for you. And, uh, I think the first question always to ask is whether if I'm sharing something, is it worth more or less than $6? If it's worth more, ah, good. then I might want to reconsider whether to share it because that's what I most likely get. Even so, the company pays out billions of dollars for data breaches. It, it doesn't get to me, unfortunately, the billions of dollars. Otherwise, we probably, neither of us would sit here. We would be enjoying our right. cocktails on the beach. I'd be, I'd be laying back. Yeah. My headset on absolutely or not. Um, are, are there any tools specifically for around VPNs that you recommend? For the VPNs, others? I think the convenience question is, uh, is one you mentioned not VPN, which might be good if you're, especially here stateside and want to go around, um, Europe has other ones where, where it makes more sense because they have more servers closer by. So it really depends on where the listener sits and then thankfully most of them have a month of a trial so give it a month of a try run yeah right yeah because the the speed thing definitely um comes into play right if you have one activated you can't you're not getting the highest uh bandwidth you know to your your zoom calls let's say so yeah definitely testing them out i used to use hma um it's a it's an acronym for hide my ass um, and so like I used that one for years and, and it was this little caricature of a donkey that would pop up and, you know, um, when, when the VPN was on, it would have like a mask on and it was, just, it was, it was cute, but yeah, you could log in from different locations and it had, um, I can't remember what it was called, but, um, it would like jump IPs every so often. Right. And then, um, if there was a, if there was uh, no connection, it would like drop out or switch or do something in the background. But I, I haven't seen a lot of the tools like really talking about that. But again, I think your advice is just test, test it, it out. out. Yeah. Try something. Yeah. Perfect. Um, you, you mentor, you know, founders and, and employees around the, the different aspects of, of cybersecurity. Right. And so can you, can you speak to, you know, uh, maybe a success story 
you were coaching, mentoring um, a team or a company that was in a certain place and how you helped them to reshape the culture around cybersecurity at the more human level? Yeah, I think for, especially on the founder level, um, and be careful with names here because it's a SEC or, yeah. investment rules group and it's just some places. I think okay, we talked about it, one of the big aspects teaching someone is, okay, it happens, let not blame the person, but let's work on, okay, how do we communicate it out? How we tell our customers, how do we move forward? And uh, I've, I've seen it very much, I think in both the cases where one of my starts up had that, and I was kind of the investor with most cybersecurity experience. It's not just that the boss wants to blame someone, instead of looking at moving forward, it's also that the employee wants to blame someone. So it's a lot of working with the people at that point, building culture around it, building culture of accepting, okay, these things happen. How can we minimize the impact? How can we build our communication strategies around them? And how can we really look forward of what to do now? And um, if we look at the, for big companies at the new SEC rules, all of them say, okay, you don't have to be the most secure company, but you have to have good communication practice. You have to give people the chance to act before someone uses your data breach to do bad stuff. And I think most of the success stories I had were all around these kind of ideas where, okay, how can we not prevent it, but how can we be ready for when it happens? Because I think the new Verizon data breach report said 75% of companies will experience a breach every year. So it's right. It's really, that's the more important part. Okay. What do we do? That's a scary number. It happens. That's a scary number. So in these conversations, are you talking to IT admins or are you talking to teams of individual contributors? And then how do you enforce this and train on this to create a, a, a real, you know, culture around this. It's most of the conversation at either the management or at the board level. So it's okay. often not how would you train it, but how do we build a strategy to train it? And culture and companies always has like two parts. One is what's enforced from above, what's coming from the bottom. And then yeah, working okay. to build a strategy which matches the two, give some feedback on the strategy at the board level to say, okay, did you really consider what your employees do, how your company is operating, or is it just you found a template on the internet or your highly overpaid consultant, including myself, found a template for you and you're trying to mesh it now into that desert little aspect which we talked about three times what you want to change and you didn't consider that. So it's but it's in many cases, it's more asking the right question, listening to them, giving people the ideas of how to think about it, then it's really to tell them what to do. Because in the end, no matter whether it's mentoring or whether it's board strategy, there are people who sit there and do that day to day. So, and you can't sit there day to day, no one will pay you for that time. And quite frankly, that would probably take up from all the other stuff I'm doing. So it's really making people Absolutely. think about it, making them reflect on it and making them match it to who they are and what they want to achieve, then 
and giving them the freedom to act on it. And sometimes as a mentor, you then get feedback of where you have to admit, okay, I've never thought about it that way, but that's a good idea. And I think that's a great thing about mentorships. It goes both ways. You learn a lot about what you're doing and whether you're doing a good thing or whether you maybe need to change a bit your approach. Right. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of it, we have to remember that we're all going to make mistakes, right? We can, we can talk, we can communicate and we can try our best and, you know, iterate over time, but you know, we're all just humans, right. And prone, prone to error as a result. Um, something you mentioned earlier, I mean, we we're talking about bringing chat GPT into the conversation and how that's, you know, shaking the foundations of online security, but in your opinion, you know, how, how can like process automation play a role in cybersecurity to limit those human errors or redundancies or, or anything like that? Have there been any use cases that you've been involved with where automation has played a role? Yeah. A lot of our identity things revolve getting double entries out, making automating identities, then working with our partners, whether it's open exchange or next cloud to do the same for data duplication. And I wouldn't have thought I'd still need to say it in 2023, automating backups and data collection and data archiving, because all of these things are, whether it's data entry, whether it's identity, things which are really low value for an individual to do, but high stakes and so, and highly repetitive. So getting that then automated really takes out the human error because it's the same data which goes everywhere. It's the same time the backup runs, it's the same data the backup needs to consider. So there isn't really a reason for a human to be in there. There isn't a reason for a human to sit there, oh my God, not again to copy over the file and say, like, uh, did I copy that one or not? And it's boredom is one of the worst enemies of secure practices. So getting these boring things out, getting people to do the high value task, getting them feel valued is, I think, the, the main goal of automation for from a security standpoint. Of course, from business side, it's getting people to do stuff which brings more revenue. But um, yes. Yeah, from a security standpoint, get out boredom, get out of repetition, get people to feel like they're doing something which has an impact. What are some of the other trends that you're seeing, um, you know, kind of e emerge in regards to identity management, cybersecurity, and even automation? Now that we are at least in an economic contraction, um, we've seen a lot of questioning of whether cloud is a good idea and I think maturing of the question of uh, of the cloud where you really see, okay, what's the total cost of ownership versus, okay, can I roll it out fast? Can I roll it out quickly and just have something which we saw, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, where people said, okay, we have to get a tool where you work remote. Here it, here it is, no matter the cost in six months. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Maturing of that. And I have to admit, finally seeing the death of anyone putting in, we want to do crypto this and crypto that. Yes. yes. I haven't heard anyone talk about crypto or NFTs in months. 
where did they all go? Yeah, and where did they all go? So, um, is cloud a good idea or is it more just a necessary part of the equation because now we're all remote? I think it very much depends on the size of your company and what you're doing. And I think we are seeing this consideration a lot more where people think, okay, if I have the old pizza box server standing in in the closet and that thing runs at 90% load the whole day, that's a good case to make for having that pizza box still there because the cloud will be a lot more expensive in that case. If your server says, okay, I'm idling 20 hours out of the day at 1% and then have two spikes of two hours in that case, migrating to the cloud, getting that set up to spin up the machines when needed. It might be an investment at the beginning, but will pay off in the long term. And um, it's the same question then if you think about, okay, what's more energy efficient, not just price-wise, but for if you have to do carbon accounting because you're a big company, that might play in whether you get the carbon out or whether it's... Uh, in your server room, but it's getting more into the question, okay, what's the total cost of cloud migration versus, okay, what, what's a quick fix to, to it? And I hope that will continue to be because there are great things you can do with the cloud, but there's also a certain hype cycle, which maybe overhyped some of the questions of, okay, cloud native right. company, and you go in and see, or the new CIO comes in and says, okay, we can save half our budget if we don't put everything in the cloud. And that, yeah. Right. Bit of a question why that hasn't happened before. Do you work with B Corp organizations or ones that's aspiring to, to yeah. reach that status and reduce yeah. their carbon footprint? Yeah. Okay. It, it's mm -hmm. a very interesting thing space, both in terms of what what they do to reach the space, but also in terms yeah. of how sometimes fluid these measures are of not just B Corp, but I think the whole ESG space and it's a bit, okay, a moving target, which might be a good thing, but it also makes it sometimes frustrating if you see, okay, we finished that and it's obsolete now. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, let's talk to the future, Kevin. And um, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on where this industry is going. Um, you've seen challenges, you've seen opportunities for, for growth, but where do you think we'll be in the future? You, you talked about Google Glasses being able to, you know, decrypt things and read things that people don't have access to. What, what, what's next? What should we be looking out for? Um, I know you, oh, you're laughing. You, you've probably got a, a really good answer and I'm excited to hear it. I've yesterday read a very interesting article. What's the way most chat GPT breaches have happened? It's 26,000 accounts have been compromised because people used insecure passwords and people get proprietary information out there. So as much as I would love to say, oh, quantum computing is saving us, AI will do changes. I'm sure in cybersecurity, 
that's been always hovering around 80% of human error. I'm sure 10 years from now, it will be still 80% of human errors. It's just, we are so good yeah. at finding ways to make our life easier and more complicated in the long run. Um, but apart from that, I think we'll see a lot more automation, a lot more tasks where, um, where people get augmented by computers and we might see a revolution in how we do encryption, especially on the government level, because we get quantum chips, which are less than a million dollar for one data breach, which it's great for the U.S. government to do it. It's, or it's peanuts for them probably. It's not so much if we want to look into how can businesses or consumer utilize it. Kevin, thanks so much for your time today. Um, I know I learned a lot. I'm taking out lots of notes. I'm going to have to revisit my VPN, password management, 2FA, multi-factor authentication strategy for my company. So thanks for your time today and for sharing all of this. Um, definitely appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And where's the best place that people can connect with you if, if they want to learn more about the work that you're doing? Easiest way to reach me if you want a two-way conversation is LinkedIn. Otherwise, my personal website, Corte.co, that's K-O-R-T-E.co, has all the links to the latest article and application and podcasts where I've been on. And we'll be sure to have all those links in the show description. Kevin, thanks again. Appreciate your time. Thank you. We'll chat soon. Thanks for listening to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Marquis Murray. If you liked what you heard today, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Don't forget to rate the episode and share it with a friend. 